I'm going to ask you to remain seated as we read through a portion of this text. We read it in the invocation, but I want to bring us back to it just for a moment before we proceed today with the message. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, just as we sing. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will do this. This morning we will begin a series together focusing on the titles of Jesus that we find here in this Messianic text from the prophet Isaiah. We see that there are four titles in four weeks. The first is that of Wonderful Counselor. Second, Mighty God. Third, Everlasting Father. And then the fourth, the Prince of Peace. And so during the month of December, those are the the focuses that we will have in our Sunday morning gatherings together. Sometimes when we enter into a holiday season, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, when I come to Christmas holiday season, I'm excited about it. I think there's always this, this desire, this longing, and maybe it's kind of the, the, uh, the experiences that you had as a child. There's this kind of aroma of Christmas that just kind of puts a smile on your face. But I know that a lot of times what happens is we, we have that, that overwhelming desire to be happy. You know, I mean, chestnuts are roasting on the open fire, folks, right? I mean, there's a desire to, to experience Christmas in the way that we always do with candles and with scented candles and apple pie and ham and, and family that don't fight. You know, there's always that expectation and joy of having those things in our life. But then a lot of times what happens is, is there's pressure already. I mean, coming in from the summer into the fall, November, you already had one family get together and you know how that went. There's stress. There's pressure from work, from relationships, whatever it might be. And what happens many times in Christmas is we suppress many of those feelings so that we can put on the smile. So that we can light the candle. So that we can enjoy Christmas. I mean, it only happens once a year. Let's just put on a brave face and do what we got to do. January's coming. So we push those things down inside. What I want us to, to do over the next several weeks is allow those things to emerge back at the top for us. Because pushing them to the bottom and hoping that they go away or pushing them off to another time to deal with is not a healthy way to live, and it's not a Christian way to live because we have a God. And the very idea of Christmas, the very idea of incarnation means that our God has come to us so that we might know Him and so that He might bring healing and restoration in our lives. So that's what I want us to focus on over the next 
four weeks together, focusing today on this title of Jesus, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now, who do you go to when you need counsel? I mean, who, who do you go to when you need answers? Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends on several different factors. It depends upon the problem that you're facing, doesn't it? If I had a chemistry question, well, don't come to me, right? I, I don't have any answers there. Maybe go to Doug or Tom, but if you have a chemistry question, seek somebody out who, who knows a little bit about chemistry. When I have a car question, oftentimes I'll just walk across the parking lot and I'll go to Cameron. And I used to think he was just really clever when it came to cars, But in reality, he's a YouTube mechanic. And so, like, he knows how to use YouTube, and apparently then you know how to fix cars. So I've I've come to the conclusion that maybe he's not as clever as I thought he was in regards to cars, uh, because I've been able to fix some things on my own, too. But now, don't come to me if you have a serious problem with your car, right? I mean, Grant can attest to that. (laughs) Who do you go to when you need counsel? You go to someone who has the education needed to maybe fix the problem, or someone, maybe even, that has experienced that kind of problem in the past, and their experience has then given them wisdom about how to deal with that particular situation. What does Isaiah say about Jesus? He says that he is the wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, he describes him with this adjective of wonderful. Now, what does wonderful mean to you? There's that question that everybody likes in Sunday school. What does it mean to you? What does wonderful mean to you? Well, wonderful, oftentimes it just means pleasant, doesn't it? Right? I think eggnog is a wonderful holiday drink. It's pleasant. It's enjoyable. I think our Christmas tree that we set up last night is a wonderful addition to the dining room. It's nice to look at. Makes me happy inside, right? Is this what Isaiah means by wonderful? Well, Jesus is probably not bad to look at, but I think there's more to it than that. It means that he's extraordinary, that, that he's above everyone else who happens to counsel. He, he's extraordinary. He, he is miraculous in his counsel. He's sometimes very difficult to understand, mysterious even, creating wonder and awe in his counsel. His counsel exceeds our imagination. It grants us hope when we thought that hope really wasn't possible anymore. That's what his counsel does. Now, there's a lot of different texts that we could look at to think through how Jesus being our wonderful counselor affects us. But I want us to focus our attention this morning on Hebrews chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 14 down to verse 16. Now in this text, the author describes Jesus, not so much in the terms of wonderful counselor, but as in high priest. And I think we'll see how those two, uh, they, they come together for us in Jesus. Chapter 4. Verse 14, the author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, how, how high priests were very much counselors of the people of Israel. Well, what is a counselor? Well, in the Old Testament, the verb to counsel is used over 70 times. It gives this idea of counseling, but, but a, a sense of deliberateness about the instruction given. That there's, there's purpose being explained. It means to determine. The high priest would, would mediate between God and people. He would do the necessary rituals and sacrifices. And he, would, he would do the, the, this mediation in a variety of ways. Rituals, sacrifices. He would convey the commands of God to the people. He would help them to understand the will of God. What it is that God expected of them and how they should obey God. He would, he would lead them in the way that he spoke to them. And he would lead them through his own actions, that they might follow God faithfully. So the author of Hebrews is is telling us that we should look to Jesus as our great high priest. Most specifically, we should listen to him. We should listen to him, and we should obey him. Reminds me of what the Father said to the disciples as they were gathered on the Mount of Transfiguration He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the first thing that we must do this morning is listen to and obey the words of our great high priest, our wonderful counselor. Look at verse 14 again. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed Through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Now, I want you to notice how this this command, that he tells us that we are to hold fast to the confession. You broaden out in the book of Hebrews what he's talking about. The confession is referring to this gospel that we've been given through the apostles, right? We're to hold fast to our confession of who Jesus is, but he gives us two things on either side of it. The first is he says, Jesus is our high priest, our counselor, and he says, we should hold fast to our confession because he has gone into heaven. The second, uh, behind it, he says, we should hold fast to our confession because Jesus is a man who's experienced everything that we've experienced in life. So he's both God and he's man. He, he has divine understanding and wisdom from eternity past. Jesus knows everything that is, was, ever will be, all of it. He knows all of it. He has complete and utter wisdom as God. But then also on the flip side of that, he is man. And he has all of the understandings of what it feels like, what it, what it means to be human. To go through seasons where you're sick, where you're ill, where you're frustrated, where things don't seem to be going the right way, when, when you're, you're broken and hurt, he knows what it means to feel these kinds of emotions. So these are 
two very important reasons why the author tells us we must listen to and obey the words of Jesus. Look at the first of these. We listen and we obey Jesus because Jesus has passed through the heavens. Now, the author is not talking about his incarnation. Initially, that's what maybe we think when we look at that. He's not talking about Jesus passing through the heavens to descend to earth to be born in a manger. He's actually talking about the opposite of that. He's talking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3, after Jesus made purifications for sins, he sat down next to God the Father. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he's crowned with glory and honor. Chapter 6, verse 19, he passed through the veil there to make sacrifice for us. So friends, we should be very much like the the apostles who were there standing on that hillside 2,000 years ago. Jesus gives to them those last words, the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, so on and so forth. And as they watched him ascend into the clouds, as he stepped through the veil into the heavenly places, that passion that gripped them to go and extend the gospel to the rest of the world, that should be the same passion that grips us. Christ has passed through the heavens, not simply as a high priest, but as the divine Son of God. He is God Himself. He is the heir of everything. Everything belongs to Him. He's the ruler of the kingdom of God. There is, there is absolutely nothing that is beyond Christ. He is our wonderful counselor. This is why Paul says of God, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given to Him that it might be repaid? Jesus is a wonderful counselor, high priest. When we listen to and obey Jesus as our wonderful counselor, It drives us to some specific application points in our lives. The first is our wonderful counselor gives us new purpose. He gives us new purpose for life. You remember what a counselor is supposed to do, right? He's one who who gives direction to someone. He's someone who gives purpose and highlights purpose in someone's life. And so because Jesus has passed through the heavens and because he has done the very work on the cross that has given us new life and salvation and because he is our wonderful counselor, he has called us to be a part of a new way of living. This is one of my favorite verses in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So what is the reason that you are planted in that seat this morning? What is the reason for which you are here living at this time on the earth? Why do you exist? Peter tells us to proclaim the excellence of God. That's why you're here. It's not so that you can make enough money so that you can do this or that. It's not so that you can travel around and do this or that. It's not so that you can have grandkids and spoil them and then send them home. That's not the purpose for living. The purpose for living is to proclaim the excellencies of God. And so at times like this, when we come to the Christmas season, and like I said, we begin to take all of the stress and the pressures and we push them down so that we can enjoy Christmas, 
I think we even phrase it that way sometimes, don't we? When we do that, when the pressure seems too great, when we struggle with our own self-worth, the way that people look at us, the way that people feel about us, or we feel like maybe we're failures, our counselor tells us that we are valuable to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You don't belong to yourself if you're a follower of Jesus. You don't get... You don't have the right to say that you're going to do this or that with yourself, with your time, with your money. As a follower of Christ, we submit that to the one who rules and reigns in our life. Why? Because we're not free agents. We've been bought with a price. God paid an exorbitant amount to save your soul. To rescue you from the clutches of death, God gave up everything. His own son in order to save you. Friends, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. We have a new purpose. Our wonderful counselor gives us also a new perspective. The author said in chapter 2 and verse 8, God put everything in subjection to Jesus. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But he goes on and says that we will at one point. Now, it seems like, especially as we reflect on this past week, that, that hatred and evil and violence rule the world. Now, the sad thing is that many of, many of the times for us as Americans, it only matters when it happens here. And the truth is, thousands of people have died this week in horrible, violent acts around the world. 14 of them died here in our own country. But it seems as though devastating things are everywhere. Violence is a pandemic around the world. And as Christians, we could panic. We could panic to the point where we don't know what to do. Maybe we wouldn't feel safe going to the supermarket. We wouldn't feel safe going to the movie theater. We wouldn't feel safe going out and walking our kids in the street or having a Christmas party with coworkers. But the truth is God and his wonderful counselor give us a much grander perspective, a perspective that sees the brokenness of this world being brought to an end through the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because the only one who can really bring about peace in this world not government policies and it's not Barack Obama. The only one who can bring about true peace is the one who is the prince of it. And that peace will only come through the gospel and the church's proclamation of the excellencies of God who's called them out of darkness and brokenness and hatred and evil and wickedness and into his marvelous light that is found in the gospel. Our wonderful counselor gives us purpose. He clarifies our perspective. And as a result, our priorities change. So when we look at our own life, how do we know if listening to and obeying Jesus really is a priority for our life? 
How can you measure that? Well, do you spend time with him? It's like the easiest question in the world to ask yourself, but it's the hardest in the world to answer. Do you spend time with Jesus? Do you spend time in prayer? Or do you not? Did you used to, but now as you look at your life, even right now this morning as you reflect over this last week, how many times did you actually pray? How many times did you set down with the intent purpose of actually speaking to your creator, your redeemer? And how many times did you think, you know what, I should get up a little bit early tomorrow morning and read my Bible and, and pray? And then what happened? Well, there was a snooze button and you hit it. And then by the time you got up, you didn't have time, you had to get showered, you had to get to work, you had to do all of these other things, and life happened, and you didn't spend any time with the Lord. And so the very first time that you've spoken to him in a week is maybe even when you've come in these doors and you began to sing a song because Cameron told you to. Maybe the first prayer that you'll offer this week is maybe at the close of this sermon. How can you measure your priorities? Well, do you gather when the church gathers? Do you come together? Not because... I said you had to. Not because your pastor stood up and told you that you should and as a result then you felt guilty. Or your pastor stood up and told you that you should and then because you're stubborn you said, no, I'm not going to now. Did you gather with the church? The church gathers. And we gather together not because we have to but because we want to. Because when we get together, we're building community with one another. We're asking one another how life is, how the gospel is being worked out in your life. When we gather on Wednesday nights, we're praying for one another. For those of you who don't come on Wednesday nights on a regular basis, we're praying for you. We're praying that God would do continued works in your life. We're praying for one another, for healings. We're praying for the salvation of those in our own church family who are connected through the community. We're praying for the nations. How many nations, Cameron? Over 50, 45, 50 nations by the end of this year that we have prayed for intensely that God would continue his work of bringing people to Christ, to building up the church. Do you surround yourself with Christians that will encourage you and strengthen you? Or do you isolate yourself from believers? See, all of these are ways that we can measure whether or not we're listening to and obeying the counsel of Jesus. So what is the second reason that we are to hold fast to our confession of Jesus? Well, here it is. We listen and obey because Jesus understands our problems. He knows what we're going through. He was tempted, it says, but he's sinless. Look at verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So we hold fast because Jesus is our divine, wonderful counselor who reigns from heaven with perfect knowledge and power. And we hold fast because Jesus is truly, not just like in a, in a yeah, sure he is. No, he truly is one of us. He's like us. God in flesh. He empathizes with us. 
Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors, whom I look forward to meeting one day, he, he talks about this sympathizing Savior like this. It's beautiful. It should be on the screen behind me, so don't get lost. 19th century English, don't get lost. Our master stoops to weakness. Isn't that beautiful? He is not only touched with the feeling of the heroic endurance or, or of the martyrs, but he, is, he sympathizes with those of us who are not heroes, but can only plead, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. While you are entreating the Lord thrice to take away the thorn in the flesh, he is sympathizing with you. Is it not well that it does not say, touched with the feeling of our patience, our self-denial, our valor, but with a feeling of our weakness. That is our frailty, our littleness, the points in which we are not strong nor happy, our pain, our depression, our trembling, our sensitiveness. He is touched with these, though he falls not into the sin which so often comes of them. Hold fast this truth of God, for it may greatly tend to your consolation someday. Jesus is touched not with a feeling of your strength, but of your infirmity. Down here, poor, feeble nothings affect the heart of their great high priest on high who is crowned and with glory and honor. As the mother feels the weakness of her babe, so does Jesus feel with the poorest, saddest, and weakest of his chosen. Isn't that good news? Just nod yes. So good. I mean, how many times as a parent, you've woken up in the middle of the night and your child is sick and they're throwing up sick, their fever is burning and you just wish that you could do something. You wish even to the point where you wish that you could just take their place. You empathize with them. You sympathize with them. You get the the washcloth and you wipe their face. You try to take care of them because you really wish that you could just trade places with them and you'd gladly be sick for them. The reality is our empathy can only go so far. Can't it? You can't actually do that. But there's one who has. Jesus' empathy is not limited Not only did he take on flesh, becoming one of us, he helped. He gently spoke to us. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He became like us so that he might save us. In fact, Paul says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our wonderful counselor because he truly understands what we're going through. It's not a platitude. He really does. He knows what it feels like to be hungry and thirsty. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed by a friend. What it feels like to have a broken heart. He knows what it feels like to lose someone that you love deeply. He knows what it feels like to be treated unfairly, to be gossiped about behind his back. Jesus even knows what family drama feels like. There's nothing that you are going through that your wonderful counselor does not fully understand. 
So if Jesus is our wonderful counselor, if Jesus is our high priest, how then should we respond to him? What should we do? Well, verse 16. Give all of your life to your wonderful counselor. Look at verse 16. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So first of all, you have to be humble. You want to come to your your counselor, the wonderful counselor? Do you want to respond in faithfulness to him? You have to be humble. Look at the phrase in verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Well, the first thing is you have to recognize that you have a time of need. That you don't have it all together. That you are broken. That you are unable to fix the many problems in your life. That you are a sinner even. How many of us are like the Laodicean church? We, we say things like, I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that we're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Maybe we don't say it with our voice, but we live it with our life. I got everything I need. I got everything that I need to do all of the things that I need to do to be happy. We think we've got it all together, but in reality, we are pitiful. Broken, inside and out, blind. We don't even see our own problems correctly. Naked. Verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can't hide from God, can you? And we we look okay. On the outside, oftentimes we look like we got it all together. We've got the job that we've always wanted. It's going well. We're getting promoted. We've got finances all in order. The family that we have is, is great. Everything looks Wonderful, pleasant. But before God, there is weakness. He sees it. He sees the internal struggle. He sees every sin laid there. And for some of you, you need to face that. Because you're living with the stubbornness of having it all together, thinking that you really do. You need to humble yourself. Others of us here this morning... We need to hear that God gives grace when we need it most. Because maybe you feel beat up in life. Maybe you live with that, with that continued understanding that you really are broken. Don't really have much to offer other people. Nobody really seems to care about you. They just care about themselves. Maybe you doubt your value. Maybe because you made some stupid decisions years ago. And those decisions continually haunt you every day. And you think, wow, maybe this is what I got. This is all me. Maybe you beat yourself up all the time because of your your, your tendency to go toward bitterness and anger and to lose your temper and to yell at your own family. Maybe you find yourself depressed because you lash out even when you don't want to. Maybe you kick yourself every single day because your eyes just continue to wander. And it's such a struggle to be faithful. 
Friends, there is grace for you in a time. Be humble. Secondly, be confident. He says, let us with confidence draw near. This is kind of a new thing for the people of God. In the Old Testament, you remember the story when the Israelites had gathered around the, the mountain and they were hearing from the voice of God and they said to Moses, smooth aside, Moses, we're going to just go ahead and walk up there and deal with this God ourselves. Is that what they said? No. Nobody read their Bible this year? No, that's not what they said. They said, you go talk to him. He's crazy scary. You go talk to him. You deal with him. Then tell us what he wants us to do. They, they were scared out of their minds of this God. You think the high priest, he would just walk into the Holy of Holies whenever he felt like it? I mean, he just, you know, that's oh, a nice day. I think I'll go check out and see what God's up to this morning. Saunter into the Holy of Holies wearing his Frank Sinatra hat. You know, no, of course not. Why? Because he lacked no confidence that God would not strike him dead. You see the newness of what we're experiencing in Jesus Christ? At no time in history were the people of God been told, approach the throne of God with confidence. But here we're told, approach him with confidence. Draw near with confidence. And it's not because of us. It's because of Jesus. We we look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who bled and died on a cross to reunite us with God so that we could stand in the presence of God unashamed, boldly, with confidence, not because of our own robes of righteousness, but because Christ had taken off his righteousness and he placed it upon us. So now that when God looks upon you, he sees Christ. And so when you're internally broken and messy and sinful, you're still covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so you can then approach the throne of God with confidence, with boldness. We enter the holy place without fear, but with boldness. So be humble. Be confident. And then finally, receive God's grace. Look what he says. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. God's throne for us is not a throne of condemnation. So no matter how the devil tells you that you can't go to God in prayer, that you shouldn't spend time with God in his word because God, he's just going to condemn you or that you're really just a rotten person. And God doesn't really want to have anything to do with you. When you have those those moments where the devil is tempting you to think that way, remember, God's throne for you as a follower of Christ is not a throne of condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it is a throne of grace. From his throne, God gives us life. Look what, once again, Spurgeon, beautiful quote. Then we'll wrap it up. He says, It is a throne from which grace delights to look upon the miseries of mankind with tender eyes. Isn't that beautiful? It is a throne from which grace delights to look upon the miseries of mankind with tender eyes, to consider them and to relieve them. Come then, 
Come then, come then you that not that are not only poor, but wretched, whose miseries make you long for death and yet dread it. You captive ones, come in your chains. You slaves, come with the irons upon your souls. You who sit in darkness, come forth all blindfold as you are. The throne of grace will look on you. If you cannot look on it and will give to you, though you have nothing to give in return and will deliver you, though you cannot raise a finger, to deliver yourself. This is the throne of grace. Friends, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. We come to him in our weakest of moments and he meets us at the throne. He listens to us. He guides us. He mediates between us and God. He reminds us of who we are. He reminds us of our purpose that we now have in him. He reminds us of a renewed perspective about what God is doing in the world. He reminds us of a a new life priority. And he gives us grace and life. This Christmas, I hope that you won't just suppress the problems that are happening in your own heart but that you'll look and you'll see that wonderful counselor which stands ready to greet you, ready to heal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the incredible way in which you've supplied our every need in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us not to be a people who push our problems down the road or meagerly try to suppress them, push them down so that we can just be happy during the holiday season. Father, I pray that we would cast all of our cares upon you because you truly care for us. Lord Jesus, you, no one can plumb the depths of your wisdom and knowledge. So God, help us to come to you, humble yet confident, knowing that you will heal, knowing that you will bring about restoration, that you will bring about reconciliation, believing that you can touch us and make us new. We pray this in Jesus' name.